0: Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. It's a real privilege, and it's a delight, frankly, to open God's Word for you today. Patrick has asked me during his absence to complete our summer series on community and discipleship by focusing on four of the one another statements in the New Testament, like love one another, pray for one another, have the same care for one another. And while I was studying in preparation, looking over the various one another statements of Scripture in the New Testament, I I came across an interesting fact. There's one Greek word that is commonly translated with the two English words one another, and that Greek word occurs exactly 100 times in the New Testament. And I beg your indulgence as I engage in some Bible nerdiness before we get into four of these 100 one another's, because this little factoid got my mind going. Because I think there's a lesson in it for us, and because as an employee of Logos Bible Software, I'm contractually obligated to pursue (laughs) any Bible nerdiness opportunities that present themselves. So, what exactly are we supposed to make of the observable fact in Logos or whatever app you use, or Strong's Concordance actually, that the Greek word for one another occurs exactly 100 times? Is this number purposeful or accidental? Well, it's hard to imagine God doing anything accidentally, but just because he did something on purpose doesn't mean that we automatically understand his purposes. We've got to ask some more questions. For example, does this logic work on other words? Is every word that occurs a multiple of 10 times somehow especially significant? The Greek word for behold occurs 200 times. Does that mean it's twice as important as the Greek word for one another? The Greek word for eye and the Greek word for put also occur a hundred times. So is the theology of one another somehow related to that of eyeballs or of pudding? Also, I discovered that the Greek word for through occurs 666 times. So should we say that through, throughness is connected to that infamous, infamous number in Revelation I think once you start looking into the details, you, you'd feel as I do about the very nerdy question that I've raised. God's purpose in using this word one another 100 times was not to give it some special importance. And there's a small reason I say this, and a big reason. The small reason is that I regularly see well-meaning Christians who love their Bibles on social media posting little factoids like this, like my 100 one another's, or like other semi-secret codes that are supposed to be baked into the Bible. And I think this is a dead end for your Bible reading, brothers and sisters, looking for secret codes that God did not put there. God communicated in regular human language, as we're going to see repeatedly throughout today's message. And looking for secret numerical messages is only going to find you in a dead end. An old friend of mine just sent me, just asked me to evaluate an example of this recently. Someone took the name of God, Yahweh, and found a special secret code in it. And I thought this is one rare opportunity I have cuz I happen to notice these 101 others to give a little sort of public service announcement for Bible study and say, let's not go down that path. That's the small reason that I bring this up. The big reason is to remind you why we do what we do here. One of the reasons I attend this church is that it matters to me a great deal that the Bible, God's word, be treated with reverence and care. And I don't mean the physical object. I actually don't mind kind of like it when I see a Bible that's beat up, if it's been beat up by usage. I mean the way we treat all the words in the capital W word. I mean that when Bible teachers stand up in pulpits or at lecterns in equipping hour or in sitting on the floor in front of a bunch of four-year-olds here at this church, we care to represent God's word accurately, or at least we know we ought to try When we teach, we think of ourselves as heralds repeating a divine message instead of as little kings making up our own messages. I think that's the culture here, and I want to reinforce that culture. And this is why we're going to spend some time looking at the context of each of the passages that we're going to examine. That's the big reason I brought up the 101 and others. We're going to get some instruction and encouragement for continuing to build a community of discipleship. We're going to look at four one another's in three passages. The second passage will have two one another's. If you look at the screen, you can see that. Does that make sense? Three passages, four one another's. Let me just read them. Ephesians 4.25, which is where we are, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And I'll just read the next two. You can see them on the screen. James 5.16, therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, First John 4, 7, the third passage we will go, go over. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. I selected these passages because they came to mind. They felt important for the purpose our pastor gave me as we end our summer series on discipleship and community. He just asked me to end on a positive note. So let's jump into the first passage, Ephesians 4.25. We are members one of another. Now, Ephesians happens to have a really important place in my own life. The book of Ephesians was the one that my pastor was preaching through when I was called to Bible teaching ministry, and it was the first time I ever really heard the kind of what's called expository preaching that... Patrick and the other pastors employ here and that I certainly try to employ, where we're trying to expose what the text says. We're trying to expound what it says to answer the question, what does this say? Rather than, what can I say about this? And Ephesians is one of Paul's Himalaya letters. It takes you about as close as a human can get up to what Paul calls the heavenly places in Christ. Paul describes this grand cosmic plan that God has to break down what he calls the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And if you're still in Ephesians 4, I just want you to flip back to Ephesians 2. Just a couple pages or a couple scrolls in the Logos app, right? Look at Ephesians 2.14. Paul is talking here about what Christ has done to unite Jew and Gentile. And I want you to look for a word in these three verses, Ephesians 2, 14 to 16, a word that Paul uses to describe the church. Okay? For he himself, this is Paul speaking of Christ, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. There he's talking about Jew and Gentile, both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's the one word I emphasized it that Paul used to describe the church. It's the word body. If you were a faithful Jew in Ephesus in the first century and you knew your Old Testament, You knew that God intended to bless all the families of the earth, that's the promise he gave to Abraham. You also knew that Israel was called in Exodus 19 to be a kingdom of priests, mediating God's presence, his character, his words to the nations. But if you were a faithful Jew who knew your Old Testament, you also had some pretty stern warnings about your involvement with the Gentiles. They might tempt you to idolatry. And there was a testy relationship, shall we say, between Jew and Gentile, to say the least. I've seen with my own two eyes in Jerusalem, I visited when my oldest son was a baby, a chiseled stone plaque that warned Gentiles not to come come past a particular point in the temple or they'd have themselves to thank for their own deaths. There was a quite literal dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. The latter, which is most of us, were strangers to the covenants of promise, Paul says in Ephesians. We were without hope and without God in the world. Christ came to break down that wall and to unite Jew and Gentile into one thing, a body. The theology is rich here, and we'll talk more about this metaphor, but I wanna keep talking briefly through the context Of Ephesians 4.25, because famously, like Romans, Paul turns in his letter to the Ephesians from high theology, from the Himalayas to real life on the ground application. Paul uses what we call chapter three, he didn't call it that, to apply the theology of his letter to himself. So God has revealed to him this mystery that Jew and Gentile are going to become one body in Christ, And now he says he's obligated to use this revelation of this mystery that he's been given about God's plan in order to bring the gospel to the nations that are going to be included in this one body. He calls himself a prisoner of the Lord because he's under such obligation to speak the truths he's been given. This is actually the passage my pastor was preaching when I was about 19, and I was called into Bible teaching ministry. It's precious to me. Then in chapter four, and if you look at it, just look at the beginning of chapter four of Ephesians. He turns his attention to the church and he applies the theology of his letter to the church. That's us. So look at the beginning of chapter four and you'll get an obvious pointer as to what Paul's argument in the letter is. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So in other words, Paul is saying, because of all these amazing theological truths that I've just explored and explained, here's what you need to do. Walk this way, and look what he brings up. Look in Ephesians 4, 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. The unity and peace of the body are not random theological truths. He pulled off the theology shelf, got to talk about something. They are the truths that he's been explaining and pointing to throughout the letter. He's built a strong biblical foundation, a cosmic one of God's purposes underneath these truths. He has earned the theological right to talk about Christians as a body. The human body is a complex entity, isn't it? With different parts that all have to work together to get anything done. When Paul uses this same metaphor in Corinthians... In his letter to the Corinthians, he imagines the possibility of the foot saying, ah, because I'm not the hand, I guess I'm not part of the body. That's ridiculous, Paul says. Every part of the body needs all the other parts. Hostility between different parts of the body is what we call disease. We even need the appendix, though we haven't figured out yet why we need him. But God knows why he gave the body an appendix. Now look at the big paragraph that opens up Ephesians 4. This is all about the good things that happen through apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And here too, if you just kind of glance over it, if you're familiar with this passage, I won't dig deep in. Here too, the goal is the loving mutual growth of the body. Look at verse 15 of Ephesians 4. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And this is all teeing us up to catch why the one another that we're actually focusing on in Ephesians 4.25 is so significant. It comes right after a paragraph in which Paul is telling us what not to do, the stuff that non-Christians tend to do, and that's where we'll pick up at our passage, Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Why should we speak the truth? Because of the Jew-Gentile body that God has created through Christ and in Christ and under Christ the head. If the brain says to the hand, don't worry, that red glowing stove is not hot, the hand will burn itself. If the eye says to the foot, this is the last step going down, but it isn't, the whole body will fall and the ankle will twist and the nerves will scream and the mouth will cry, whoa, I hate it when that happens. (laughs) Paul does not distinguish carefully between a universal body of Christ and a local body like ours, but I have to think that the primary reference here is local. Let each one of you who are under the sound of my voice speak truth with his neighbor, In other words, the people who are actually here present now, who attend our church, that's the command. Why? For we are members one of another. We're part of the same body. That is the deep theological reason for the simple command. This is a reason that Christ purchased with his blood. Uh, My wife is actually Jewish on her mother's side, Lithuanian Jewish, and Greek on her father's side from the island of Samos near Turkey her maiden name was the unpronounceable, Vrotsis. And I think the sole criterion she must have had for a husband was that his name be easily pronounceable for speakers of American English. (laughs) Luckily, my last name is the simple Ward, so I got the girl. Anyway, Jew and Greek in one body. That's my wife. And that's the Christian church. Even if in any given locale, most of us except for her, are Gentiles. We get to participate in the cosmic unity that Christ created among a people who were divided by a literal wall of hostility. Impossible to reconcile, Christ has reconciled us. So do it. The next time you find a fellow church member annoying or frustrating or difficult or even smelly, just remember that you don't cut off the parts of your body that are frustrating or smelly, do you? Speak truth to one another in edification, in comfort, in prayer, in small group, in a text after church throughout the week, because we are members one of another in a body. Next to the next one another's, the next two are found in James five sixteen. So let's turn over there, if you would, James five sixteen. I won't spend as much time on the context of this passage. James is more like Proverbs than it is like Ephesians. The argument in James doesn't build in the same careful and extended way. But there is a therefore at the beginning of the verse. Let's just read the verse. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is actually a good example of the kind of passage that can be subtly misread, however, if you take it out of context. So let's just imagine back to my 100 one-anothers. I had a reason for this, a couple. Let's imagine that you hire a calligrapher to make a beautiful, you know, uh, what are they, you know, a calligraphy piece to put on your wall, framed. The 100 one-anothers of the New Testament. If you do that, you'll get two for your list from James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. I counted, those would be numbers 86 and 87 on the list toward the bottom. Though back to the Bible nerd rabbit trail for just one second, the first two one another's on your list of 100 would actually come from Matthew 24.10 and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So maybe you should tell the calligrapher to leave those two off, 98 one another's. How could anyone possibly misunderstand or misread, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another? They both sound so simple. What's wrong with sticking it on a plaque? Just those two statements. Well, my instinctive move every time I pull my Bible open, and it should be yours too. Anytime I look up a verse, my instinctive move is to move up to the top of the paragraph in which that verse resides. So let's do that. In my Bible, that brings me to James 5.13. Paragraphs were not inspired by the Spirit, but your Bible is probably similar. So let's start reading there. We're gonna read the whole paragraph. Let's put the 86th and 87th, one another's, in context. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. For the three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So in context, what is the kind of prayer And the kind of confession of sins, the purpose of these things that James 5.16 is referring to, it's a prayer of faith that the Lord might use to save the sick. It's confession of sins by the sick or by those attempting to avoid sickness. Now, this passage is a little difficult, frankly, and commentators are a little, you know, across the map on what to do with it. I think Christian people in our circles are maybe a little nervous about how Pentecostal James is suddenly sounding. I think... Uh, this is certainly not a promise that God will heal every Christian sick person through prayer, or I suppose all Christians would be immortal. And James could be here to tell us exactly what he meant, you know, presuming he learned English. This is also not saying that all sickness is the result of specific unconfessed sins. We have the book of Job at least to tell us that's not the case, right? But apparently some sickness does come from specific sin and some healing does come through prayer. These must be true or this passage would not make any sense. Insofar as sin can lead to sickness, confess your sins to one another. Insofar as prayer can bring healing, pray for one another. It's kind of proverbial in evangelical churches like ours. Prayer meetings end up focusing a great deal on various sicknesses, especially for those over a certain age. I think we all sometimes get bored of it. I'm just telling the truth here. We're human, but a culture, a community of confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another is actually a tool that God intends to use for the healing of some sicknesses. The time we spend in small group praying for one another's healing, as we did the last time my group got together, and it was a precious time in my backyard That time is not wasted because we are members one of another who ought to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another to be healed. So that means that confess your sins to one another, too, is not exactly a general command, a contextless command that's to be observed by all Christian people at all times. It has its first reference to times of sickness. And we can all think of instances in which confessing your sin to someone is not appropriate, not edifying. Confessing to a person you're not married to that you had lustful thoughts toward them is a terrible idea. Confessing in a public meeting, a public prayer meeting, that you're in an active struggle with especially nasty and abusive forms of pornography, also not helpful, I'm not making a joke, I'm telling what's true and serious. These confessions raise questions and issues and troubles that will harm the body. Confess those privately to someone who can help, and of course, to God himself. So what do you confess to one another? Well, the nature and extent of this command has actually formed an ancient question. Many Christians have wrestled with this over the centuries. We're not the first ones to wonder. There was one Christian writer from Spain who offered this advice a full 14 centuries ago. Listen to this. Since it would be a long and unpleasant task to reveal my sinful ways to others and to tell them everything in detail, and isn't that true? (laughs) Would you really want all of your sins to be known by everyone? Is that really helpful for everyone? He says, because of that, it must suffice for me to reveal that I am not what they believe, though I beg them to pray God that he might make me what they believe. There's just a proper humility of us all when we interact with one another. And praise God, I hear this in our church and among evangelical Christians more generally, a humility that acknowledges I am sinful and I'm still struggling against sin. That is one way to honor the one another here, confess your sins to one another. Sometimes you do just need to be vague and let your own awareness of your sins drive you toward vague humility. But the passage itself doesn't actually put limits on the sins you can confess. Those are just prudence, wisdom, discretion. And I think that our prudence in conservative churches can go too far. There is a little lists in the back of the church office somewhere, I guess, of acceptable sins that you're allowed to confess to others without being embarrassed, beginning with not doing your devotions often enough and ending with procrastination. You know, Those sins are okay to confess to others. You're not too embarrassed about those things. So I'll never forget an experience that I had with a new Christian, a friend named Dave. He is to this day a friend I'm incredibly grateful to have. As a young man, he got into major trouble, including drugs. And a judge in the state of Florida, for some reason, sent him to a charismatic Christian drug treatment center. And he got truly saved. He met a girl whose father was also in the program. They got married. Uh, Dave and his wife are friends of my wife and mine to this day. And they actually went on staff at the drug treatment center. And somehow he wound up in my town, which at the time was Greenville, South Carolina. And we ended up meeting in a random way over t-shirt designs that I was doing for my church. And he ended up coming to my church. He came from the, the, his own words, wildest Pentecostal church in the town, full of hoopla to pretty much the exact opposite, like as conservative and very reverential and staid as you could possibly imagine. And I was really nervous how he would take it, but he was just a breath of fresh air. And I'm just gonna tell you one story of what happened when he came. During one Wednesday evening prayer meeting, you know, shortly after he and his wife started coming, he paired off with a young man, man named Philip to pray, just the two of them. And Dave, my friend, asked Philip, what should I pray for you? And Philip said, well, I'm, you know, I'm struggling with some things. What things? Dave said. Just some difficulties in my life, and I could use prayer, Philip said. And Dave said, well, what are the difficulties? Dave later told me the story, and I just laughed. He had run into an unwritten rule of church culture. There are certain sins you don't confess to one another. You just don't do that. And if someone has an unspoken request, you don't pressure them to reveal it. I'm not even saying that's bad. There are times to keep things privately between you and God or between you and a pastor or elder or a godly older friend. But it was so good for me to realize that I had accepted this unwritten rule and that there were probably more times when I needed to open up. In the drug treatment program that Dave was from, there was no secrets. And he brought that culture into the church because of verses like this, confess your sins to one another. I was willing I need to communicate to other people also that I am willing to bear their burdens if they open up about a specific sin. My feeling as a pastor type, as a person who has a shepherdly care for you, is that conservatives like us who care about living holy lives and about having a righteous reputation that Proverbs says is a good thing, a good name is rather to be chosen than a lot of other important things, we could probably do a little more confessing of sin, not less. Confess private sins privately to those that you've offended, those you've wronged. Confess public sins publicly to those you've wronged. And even confess private sins privately when God is the one you've wronged. Now let's turn to the third passage, uh, but the fourth one another, 1 John 4, 7. This is the greatest one another, 1 John 4, 7. Let me read it to you. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. I'll keep reading. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. We know this is the greatest one another, the central one another. Why? Because Jesus told us that on the command to love God with your whole heart and love your neighbor as yourself, hang all the law and the prophets. The whole Bible is like a coat that hangs from these two pegs that are right next to each other. Beloved, let us love one another. So let's talk about love. Permit me just one more Bible nerdy rabbit trail. You kind of have to, you know, unless you physically remove me, you're going to get one more Bible nerdy rabbit trail. Actually, this is less like a rabbit trail and more like a mole tunnel, that will go underneath an obstacle to our Bible understanding. You just wait. So my Bible reading for yesterday, Saturday, just happened to be one of the saddest passages in all the Old Testament. I'm actually listening through an audio Bible in the Dwell app. I love the Dwell app. You've got to check out the Dwell app. And it, re- it read to me Second Samuel 11, 12, and 13, the part of the story of David in which his life takes a stark turn and in which the effects are seen immediately in his children. He commits rape and murder. Nathan the prophet confronts him, his child dies, and then his adult children go on to commit rape and murder. Do you ever read your Bible during your devotional time? You get to the end of your assigned passage and you find yourself asking God, is this really what I needed for today? God's ways are higher than ours. Yes, this is what I needed. And here's one small reason I needed it. I was reminded about a Bible, Bible use of the word love. This is not fun to talk about, but Amnon rapes his half-sister, Tamar, and this is the comment that the passage makes. I've got it up here on the screen. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Why do I bring this up? Still on my nerdy point. We sometimes like to say in evangelical circles that the world has redefined the word love to mean sex. And I know what we mean, and we're right that the world has messed up the concept of love. But not the word. The Bible itself uses the word to describe sinful loves and godly ones. The Bible itself uses the word love exactly the way we do in contemporary English. It uses the word love right here to speak of sexual desire. It's flexible. So here in 2 Samuel, the English word love is translating the very same Hebrew word that elsewhere gets translated with love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. How can the same word for love be used in both places? And to get even a little bit nerdier, the mole's gonna go even further down into the dirt, just for a second. When the Greek-speaking Jews before Jesus' day went to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek, what Greek word do you think they chose at this verse in 2 Samuel 13 for the word love? It was the word agape. Does that kind of shock you? It's true. We like to hang a lot of meaning on that word, even today, but it's not through finding the proper definition of a Greek or Hebrew word that we discern what love is. It's not through looking up the English word either, per se. If God was concerned to define that word for us, he would have inspired a dictionary in the back of our Bibles, After many years of reflection on this question and some very hard work on it, I've concluded that we know what love means just by being made in the image of a God who is love, as this passage says. But when we want to learn more about what love actually demands for our own Christian lives, we look not so much to the meaning of Hebrew and Greek words, which is very difficult. And how could that be when the greatest command is love the Lord your God and the second greatest command is love your neighbor as yourself? How could it be that God would lay those obligations on us and an extra obligation, you gotta actually know the meaning of Hebrew and Greek words to understand this. That's not the case. You can get it from English. How do you get it? How do you understand what love means when the Bible says, beloved, let us love one another. We, We learn by looking to sentences, paragraphs, and stories in our own English Bibles. We know what love means by looking at what the proper objects of love are in scripture. Starting with God, then comes people tied with us. And on it goes. We know what love means by seeing how God ranks loves. We know love by reading all the many chapters in the Gospels that detail what Jesus did to suffer and die for our sins. Why do we do that? The word love doesn't even occur in any of the what are called passion narratives at the end of the Gospels. The stories of Jesus' crucifixion and death. The word love doesn't occur there. How do we learn about love from it? Because Jesus said, there's no greater love than this than that a man laid down his life for his friends. We don't have to have the word love to see the concept lived out in Bible stories. So we know what love means by being God's image bearers, but we learn in greater detail what love looks like when we read scripture. And when we do, we run into passages like this, 1 John 4, 7. Now, the mole has exited the ground and is now wriggling around delightfully in the warm sunlight of biblical understanding. Let's feed him some treats. Let's read 1 John 4, 7 again. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Why should we love one another in this church? Why is let us love one another the final command that we're going to look at in our uh, discipleship and community series? Because, John says, love is from God. What does that mean, love is from God? Well, think about language. I'm often thinking about language. Jake Tercero and I are constantly talking about language. We love language. Like language, love is not a creation of God. The Bible nowhere says that on day whatever, he created love or he created language. Instead, both love and language have apparently been part of the Trinity for all eternity. Among the persons of the Trinity, the Father loves the Son, John's gospel tells us. And the son loves the father and they shared this love before the foundation of the world, Jesus says. The spirit too is part of the never-ending, interpenetrating, Trinitarian love that our best theologians say, like Jonathan Edwards, is what spilled out like a cup that was too full and created the world. When the Bible speaks of love in the abstract like this, love is from God it's summing up not so much the meaning of a particular Greek word as the unfolding of a concept throughout Scripture. Throughout the Bible, what has it meant for people to love God and neighbor? Well, it has meant a warm heart of sincere affection toward God and neighbor. It has meant acts of faithfulness and mercy and service motivated by that love, like Ruth who clung to Naomi and said, your people will be my people And your God will be my God. All of these many stories in the Bible and the many commands in the Bible and the wisdom in the Bible about, for example, love being patient and kind and overlooking faults and covering a multitude of sins. The Bible says love does this. This is what the Bible says love does. And all of that is from God. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. 1 John 4, 7. Love is a gift of the new covenant that we're about to remember in our communion service. It's a gift that Jesus died to give us because what is the promise? What is the central promise of the new covenant? It's not really even that your sins will be taken care of, although that is absolutely precious and essential. As Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, these famous new covenant passages say, the central promise the central benefit of the new covenant, I'm gonna give you new hearts. I'm gonna take away your heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. You're in church. God walks into the room as it were, through the time of worship or through the time of the preaching of his word. His presence is brought before your imagination and your heart is a heart of stone. You have no response. I'm gonna change that, God says, through the new covenant. I'm gonna remove that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh that actually beats the way it's supposed to. You're gonna love the stuff you're supposed to love. That is a promise of the new covenant. That is the central benefit of regeneration, giving you new life. Without Christ, we would ultimately love the wrong things and in the wrong order. Even any love for neighbor that we might have had will be twisted because of our failure to put God first. This chapter goes on to speak of similar themes. Just look down at verse 11, verses 11 and 12, 1 John 4. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. I do want you to move your attention back up to verse 7 again. We'll spend one more second on it. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If you love your neighbor as yourself in the way the Bible commands and fleshes out, the way it describes in all kinds of passages, stories, sentences, paragraphs, all throughout Scripture, if you do that, you will demonstrate that you have been born of God. That's actually bringing us back to the family metaphor, the body metaphor. members one of another because we've been born into this new family. People who don't love, they show they've not been born of God and they don't know God. God is love. If we love one another, we read that in verse 12, we're showing God does abide in us and his love is perfected in us. This will happen. Like so much of the rest of the New Testament, the New Testament will give you a command. Love one another as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then it will also give a prediction. This is actually going to happen. People who are part of God's family, who've been born of God, they will love their neighbors as themselves. There will be an increase. This is a promise of the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, so do it. If your heart does not reach out to others at this church, repent and pray that the Lord would give you that love. The new covenant that we're about to remember again, it purchased, Jesus purchased this new heart for you. God can and will do this for you. He can change your heart. What is the dirtiest thing in the universe? What is the hardest thing to redeem in all the universe? It isn't a garbage can. It isn't the mess of mildew that collects around the tiles in your shower. It isn't your eight-year-old's bedroom. It is the human heart. Only at immense cost and with immense omnipotent power could our hearts be redeemed. Could they be switched out? for hearts of flesh that love God and love neighbor. Beloved, let us love one another. Brothers and sisters, speak truth with one another because we are members of a body that Christ died to create, to reconcile and unify. Every member matters. Brothers and sisters, confess your sins to those you've wronged, privately or publicly, as discretion and prudence demand, and pray for one another to be healed as needed. These ought to be, and I think they are at our church, regular features of a healthy church community. Brothers and sisters, love one another. Love one another, and this community, EBC, will be a place full of demonstrations to the world that people who have a special divine life are here. We've been born of God that people here actually know God. We are members one of another. We must confess our sins to and pray for one another. And beloved, let us love one another. Let's pray. Lord, we fall so far short of the love that was in Jesus. Jesus died for his enemies, died to purchase redemption for all of us. And we struggle to admit to someone else that we've said a mean word to, that we've done so. We're too lazy to pray for one another. We don't think of ourselves as part of a body. We so frequently fail to really love one another. Lord, give us, show us the power of that new covenant in your son's blood, which we're about to have in remembrance. Lord, make this place a community of discipleship and a community of love. We beg you. I think I can speak for all people here who are saved, who are born of you. Our hearts go out to this vision. We want this, and we've, we are so weak. You know our frame. You know we're just dust. You've got to animate us to make us to love one another.